welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined this week by Joe Boot and Canadian director Nate Wright. Welcome, guys. It's uh, it's been a been a minute, and it's uh, it's great to see you again. Good to be back, Ryan. Yeah, good to be back with you guys, and good to be starting another season of uh, podcasting. Definitely. Yeah. So that's uh, thanks for bringing that up, Nate. This uh, this is whether we uh, whether we think of it as the last of the uh, the previous season or the first of the new season. Uh, we are it's we're here at the beginning of a new uh, a new school year, and we are uh, beginning the uh, the next season of podcasting. A uh, couple of a uh, couple of updates. Uh, Nate, uh, for uh, for some years now, uh, you've been uh, you've been co-hosting and producing uh, the Rebel Podcast, and as part of your uh, your role uh, coming on on board with the Institute, uh, that show is going to be coming on uh, to the uh, the Ezra uh, platform. I would uh, I would say network, but that seems a bit highfalutin to talk about two shows constituting a network, but. Uh, Small. We don't. We don't despise small beginnings. Well, I don't think it's the quantity of the podcast, but the quality of the podcast. So hopefully, we can uh, put some quality stuff out there, and then maybe the name network will resurface at some point. That's uh, that's usually how these things go, um, or so I'm told. So I have read. Uh, anyway, so for this, uh, at this kind of turning of the seasons. Uh, We've been doing this. This is the uh, this is the sixth uh, season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation that we're concluding here, uh, with fifty some odd episodes in the season. So that's so that's a few hundred of these that uh, that we've done over the years, Joe, uh, which is uh, which is kind of cool to think about. And it uh, it really has become uh, one of our one of our key outlets. So I'm. Uh, it's it's always. Uh, encouraging to to hear that people who come out uh, to an event, people who register for a, a training program, uh, specifically because they heard about it on on the show. So we thought that uh, we'd take uh, we'd take this time. As I mentioned, we've picked up several uh, several new listeners, people who uh, who have not been tracking with us from early days. Uh, we are delighted to uh, to have you with us, but we're gonna. Take take this episode and just talk about uh, the mission and the vision of the institute itself. Um, why why do we why do we exist? Why do we do what do we do? And why do we do uh, these specific activities? Uh, and uh, again, uh, we're we're thrilled to uh, to have Nate uh, on board with us and uh, have have an opportunity for you to uh, to talk about your. Uh, your role, your position, and uh, the the activity that you'll be doing, and just in, in carrying that vision forward in Canada. Um, so, Joe, I'll uh, we could we could rehearse this together, but I'll I'll invite you to uh, just to talk about you know why why the institute exists, uh, some of the the details on when and how and the circumstances in which it was founded, and. Just to uh, to set that up, Joe's you've got uh, you've got decades of history working in uh, you know vocational uh, evangelism apologetics, and you you kind of noticed uh, in real time as you were going around as an itinerant apologist, uh, observing the, the the objections were changing uh, the objections the questions that uh, that skeptics had towards the the Christian message. Uh, started to uh, started to change uh, maybe you can tell us about what that change looked like uh, what accounts for it and how the uh, how the institute excuse me how the institute is uh, in some ways a response to that change mm. well first of all it's great to to be together on this show uh, the three of us and uh, exciting days mm. to to be uh, Kind of introducing Nate afresh to our uh, Ezra audience, 
and uh, to see to see Nate Wright taking up the leadership of the ministry in Canada of, of the Ezra Institute. Uh, these are encouraging and exciting days for us as a as a ministry, and certainly the podcast has been part of that these last few years. Uh, I came to podcasting very late, Brian, as you know, kicking and screaming to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that I didn't see the value uh, of what uh, people were doing with with podcasts, but uh, I had other things I was focusing on. And it was kind of really during that whole um, best of times, worst of times, COVID era that we really began to podcast in earnest over the past three years, I think it is now. Um, That's right. And um, that that has seen this this particular format of our teaching really take off. And um, we've been delighted to see that. It's obviously a, a way that increasingly people like to consume uh, teaching. And it's certainly one of the ways that we're able to deliver uh, our, uh, our, our distinctive reformational uh, understanding. And that's really what the Ezra Institute is about. You mentioned that I've, uh, you're really dating me there, Ryan, with this uh, decades and years and this, that, <laughs> this, that, and the other. And I, and I had one of my. It's establishing my credibility. Day. Thank you. I feel thoroughly credible. And one of my daughters the other day was saying to me that, Dad, you're getting a bit thin on top. She said, you know, you can get one of those sprays, she said, where you can actually, uh, because your hair is so dark, Dad, she said, you can actually get a dark spray that sprays your forehead. It's sort of, and then you can't see that you're thinning on the top. So um, similarly, I'm feeling thoroughly dated right now um, with this. But yeah, it's been, as I look back now, I began as a vocational Christian evangelist and apologist in, well, I would have been, let me see, uh, 23. Uh, so that's about, uh, well, it's 26, almost 20, 27 years ago now. And um, during that time, you know, I've shared the gospel and sought to um, explain and defend the gospel in numerous settings, everything from high schools to prisons to music festivals and hotels right down to formal public debates in universities and uh, during that period of course i had the privilege of planting and leading westminster chapel in downtown toronto as a pastor but nonetheless doing the work of an evangelist and apologist as a pastor um, for about 14 years and 10 years as the as the leader there in in toronto so it's been a varied um, and exciting ministry, and I still feel like I'm just getting going, really, just getting into my stride now um, and looking forward, by God's grace, to what the next 20 years of ministry hold for the Ezra Institute and for the role that um, uh, I'll play in that. But uh, the Institute was founded in 2008, so we are, what does that make us, uh, 15 years old? about now 15 Um, yeah and yeah uh so that time has has flown by and you'll remember very well ryan that we began really in a broom cupboard um at the church at westminster chapel uh i think you were my first staff member uh began part-time um and uh we started with a, a little website and we began with a, a mm-hmm. journal which is still with us to this day called Jubilee, uh, publishing it three times yep. a year. And what we started to do was to try and reflect on the, the significance and meaning of the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ for culture. Uh, and um, the way that you've, I think, framed the question is helpful because... Because I have had got to see pretty much a quarter of a century of work in Christian apologetics in the public space, I did see and have seen the the nature of the challenge and the nature of the questions change. Um, when I started in the work of evangelism and apologetics in England, the Christian apologetic task was still seen very much as focused on things like, well, you need to give reasons for belief in the resurrection, evidences for the resurrection. Um, you know, people were still asking you about um, uh, 
the kind of, you know, who was Jesus? Why did he die type questions? Um, the problem of evil, you know, what about evil and suffering in the world? Um, and uh, does God exist? And of course, these are important questions. Uh, it's not that they're not still asked mm-hmm. to a degree. But most of the questions I was dealing with in my early ministry were ones that presupposed biblical literacy in the questioner. I mean, if you're going to answer right. questions about, for example, you know, the archaeology or the textual history of the Bible, uh, then th- th- there's a certain amount of knowledge being presupposed in the uh, the questioner. Uh, they have a certain familiarity with Christian claims and Christian doctrine. Um, they know that the, the Bible has two testaments, for example. They know something about the claims of Christ, the, the resurrection narratives. But over the past 25 years, much of that biblical literacy has disappeared in our culture. And so it's pretty rare now to be challenged about the doctrine of the Trinity, unless you're speaking to a Muslim, or to be mm. asked about uh, the textual variants of the New Testament. Uh, or even to be asked for, you know, a few good reasons to believe in the historicity of the resurrection. I noticed that the questions began to change. And frankly, from those those types of questions, which are easier to handle, frankly, uh, to what I would call more civilizational, cultural, mm-hmm. socio-political challenges about the uh, legitimacy of... Christian claims, Christian history, um, the Christian past, Christian identity itself, and the 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 challenge would challenges would very quickly become. But isn't Christianity a patriarchal, misogynistic, colonial, imperialist um, religion? Isn't it? essentially uh, implicated in a history of violence and oppression? Uh, Doesn't it deny uh, freedom of choice? Uh, Doesn't it deny uh, personal liberties and so on and so forth? And it was as though it went from interested questions about the Christian faith that people wanted clarity around to fundamental objections uh, about the very uh, presence of Christianity in our culture. Um, and so <clears throat> the way I would kind of illustrate it with t- two quick illustrations, um, one would be the shift is very much like the shift from Acts 2 to Acts 17. Culturally, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to Jewish proselytes from all over the known world. They're not yet Christians, but they do they're God-fearers to a degree. They've been up to the festival in Jerusalem. Um, they're mainly Gentiles from various parts of the world, uh, but they have a, a, a basic uh, understanding of the biblical worldview. And so Peter is uh, is able to get up and refer to the prophet Joel and identify Jesus as the anticipated Messiah of the Older Covenant, and call people to repentance, and 3,000 are converted in one day. He was able to presuppose all of that biblical literacy, that essential biblical world and life view in his listeners. Fast forward to Acts 17, amongst the the raw pagans, the Epicurean and Stoic thinkers, the the Greek philosophers there at the center of the ancient world's learning in Athens, uh, at the Areopagus, and this temple filled with idols and the unknown god, And Paul, you'll notice, doesn't directly quote any Bible passages. The scriptural worldview Mm -hmm. is absolutely present in his presentation. But he doesn't refer to the prophets of the Old Testament because it wouldn't have meant much to the Greeks. And when he talked about resurrection, they're not thinking about Old Testament prophecies about uh, resurrection. And, you know, for example, Job's anticipation of resurrection life in my flesh, I will see God. They're thinking in terms of Greek philosophy, why would God resurrect a corpse? That's a backward step in Greek philosophy where the material world, the the, the body is more of a prison for the soul. Um, and so uh, Paul uh, has a major challenge there as he's giving his defense. Nonetheless, uh, some leading members of the council, including some of the leading women, we're told, believed. But there were three responses. Some scoffed. Some said, this is interesting, we'll hear you again about this. 
and uh, a few believed and 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 joined Paul. And uh, that's a bit like turning up at a joint faculty meeting of Harvard and Princeton and having some of the leading faculty, you know, commit their lives to Christ and you also being invited back to do some more uh, discussions. So this was a highly successful engagement, but it illustrates the difference between the two audiences. And I think I've witnessed in my lifetime, in my ministry, a shift between those two, or the, a pronounced shift. I was on the back end, the very at the beginning of my ministry, I was on the very back end of that first group, that Acts 2 group, a generally um, God-fearing uh, culture, broadly Christian worldview. I was actually just watching the, the news and reading an article today in the UK uh, that was reflecting on a census uh, a couple of years ago here where for the first time, less than um, 50% of the population identified as Christian in the UK. Um, and there was an article today about uh, a, a the Times newspaper doing a survey of uh, Anglican clergy who said that uh, a thousand of them saying that 75% of them thought that the UK was no longer a Christian country. And there was some discussion about that. Well, that was very, very different when Billy Graham came to the UK in the 50s to when he came back in the late 80s, mid 80s. You'd already mm. started to see a major shift. Well, that shift was reaching its completion at the beginning of my ministry. So as I was traveling in the work of apologetics and I began to notice this significant change, I began to think about how Christian apologetics began with incredible works like Augustine's City of God. And City of God is not a sort of, what are the top five objections to the Christian faith? Here's five easy answers, sort of, you know, pull the handle. Here's your latest little book from Augustine, six top answers to, to uh, the, seven the six objections for uh, fourth century Christians. No, the, the City of God is a, is a massive um, uh, sort of sweeping epic that begins with the fall of the... Uh, the angels uh, and the fall of man right through to the eschaton in which Augustine is concerned to justify the Christian philosophy of life. And interestingly, against charges that it is responsible for all the ills of the Roman Empire, that the decay of the culture, that the problems within the culture were due to uh, the Roman Empire abandoning slowly its paganism and turning to Christianity. And because of that, the gods were angry. And uh, of course, Christians were accused of being haters in the early church. Uh, they were accused of all manner of things. And um, they were hated for their opposition to infanticide and abortion. Uh, but Augustine defends the Christian philosophy of life. And it slowly began to dawn on me as I reflected on my own ministry and my own work. And I began to do some academic reflection on it, which eventually became my book, The Mission of God, that uh, we needed a, a sea change in our thinking as believers, that what was happening was that it was no longer sufficient to be defending these subsets of church dogmatics or just equipping people to answer a few tough questions. Uh, what was needed was really a new reformation, uh, a, a recovery of a Christian world and life view uh, with a, a renewed vision of what it means to, to present the gospel and defend the faith, um, a cultural apologetic, if you will, culture, cultus, uh, worship, um, recognizing all of life as religion and realizing that, okay, it's not just uh, defending the divinity of Christ or the existence of God or dealing with a theodicy for the problem of evil that's important. But where is, I began to ask myself, where today is the the um, defense of a Christian view of human identity? Where's the defense of the Christian view of marriage and family? Where's the defense of the Christian view of law? Where's the defense of the Christian view of politics? Where's the defense of the Christian view of economics? Where's the defense of a Christian view of education? All these key areas of culture that Christians had abdicated uh, responsibility for and retreated from, we seem to be no longer presenting and defending the faith, giving a Christian, a defense of the Christian philosophy of life in those areas, the very areas where we were losing the battle, where the struggle mm -hmm. is on. Um, 
And so evangelism in that sense, apologetics had really been seen as a handmaiden simply to evangelism, uh, that sort of apologetics was uh, evangelism for intellectuals. So if, you know, if you've got an IQ below 120, yeah. you do evangelism. If you have an IQ over 120, you do Christian apologetics. And that was the kind of idea <laughs> of it, uh, which is a total mm -hmm. misunderstanding and, and a bad one um, of what uh, the apologetic task is really about. So how do we today um, not just defend the truth claims of Scripture, um, but engage the culture with those truth claims and make them winsome, attractive, appealing, showing people essentially putting on the lens of the non-Christian's worldview and showing where that leads and then inviting them to place the lens of Christ and the Christian worldview, the, the beauty of the redemptive narrative of Scripture on their noses to see the world afresh and to see all of life in terms of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. And that became really the mandate, the mission, the idea of the Ezra Institute. Um, and we started falteringly and we, we did our best uh, as we got going. And um, the church in Toronto that I was planting and pastoring at the time was sort of the, uh, the, the, the laboratory where we were putting these ideas that we were nurturing in the Institute into practice and the founding of a Christian school. Uh, and then we began to find that other people wanted to hear a bit about uh, Christian worldview and a cultural apologetic and what does the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ really mean for all of life. The, the privatization of the faith had taken its toll on Christians and upon the church, calling forth the secularization, the repaganization of numerous areas of culture. And slowly we began to find people more and more interested uh, in what we had to say. And that led to some of the things I guess we can talk about in a minute, uh, about what we do now as a ministry and how that has expanded and grown. But that's really a bit of a potted history of how we ended up with the Ezra Institute. The word, uh, the, the name Ezra Institute was simply taken from scripture. Ezra Nehemiah uh, used to be one book. Um, Nehemiah usually gets preached on and, and gets the credit for the rebuilding, but actually it was Ezra who went in first uh, as the scholar, calling people back to the word of God, calling people away from their syncretism with paganism, calling them back to God's law, his law word. Uh, and so when Nehemiah comes and says, right, we need to rebuild, where's the volunteers? There were volunteers. If Nehemiah had come prior to Ezra's work being done, there wouldn't have been any volunteers. And so we sort of see Ezra as a ministry that is preparing the church for the task of rebuilding, uh, for the task of Christendom 2.0, if you will, the task of uh, the extension of the kingdom of God in every area of life. It's a multi-generational task, and we're just at the beginning of it, and we're trying to uh, do our best to, to, to make an instituting statement of what that can look like for future generations. Yeah, no, that's uh, thanks for rehearsing all of that, Joe. I think it's it's important and valuable just to reiterate that, uh, as you said, uh, we we're, we're not uh, we, we we do stand in a in the reformed and uh, later puritanical and reformational tradition, uh, but really, what uh, what we want to do uh, is uh, rediscover help help. Uh, help our listeners, help our audience rediscover what scripture has to say about these key cultural areas. And uh, part, of the, uh, part of the reason why uh, it's a, the, the importance of a cultural apologetic is so, uh, is so prominent is that these cultural uh, are, uh, aspects are inescapable. Like every culture has a, th a theory of law of education, of science, of art, and uh, so on and so forth. These are the things that uh, that every every civilization in every age uh, has to uh, has to deal with, has to manifest at some in some way or another. And our our ambition that's right is to 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 share the uh, the biblical perspective, uh, the Christian perspective on uh, these key areas in and for every age. Um, 
Joe, one of the uh, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, your book, The Mission of God. And uh, Nate, uh, I know that uh, we we talked about this uh, in a previous episode, but the, this was uh, this book was one of the things that that put Joe and the, uh, the Ezra Institute uh, on your radar. Uh, and maybe you can uh, talk talk a little bit about uh, about that that book yeah, and I can uh, I can talk about some of the uh, some of the activity that we do in uh, in publishing more broadly yeah the 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 book the mission of God was really what put uh, Joe and the Ezra Institute on my radar I would just say yes and amen to everything that Joe said because what he described and what the Institute became um, it was really putting the finger on all the things that I um, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor in the Pentecostal assemblies. Um, I grew up uh, with all kinds of questions about faith because I was educated in the public school system, which was very hostile to Christianity. And I felt as though, even though I was a pastor's kid and grew up in church, uh, Sunday school, youth group, even uh, my, my parents' discipleship didn't equip me for what I was um, bombarded with in the public school system at very early ages. And so I, my mind was a just muddled mess of a sort of syncretized um, religion, uh, secular humanism and evolutionary theory and, um, you know, the, the beginning uh, seedbed of, of what's now kind of full-blown wokeism. Um, and, uh, and, and it was mixed and mingled with a faith that I was told growing up in a, in a more charismatic tradition, when I would ask questions about how do we know that God exists? What does God have to say about these various things? I wasn't brought back to the law word of God. I was, or a Christian worldview. I was told, you know, um, well, can't you feel the Lord when, when you're worshiping him? And it was all this very privatized kind of Christ was Lord in between my ears, but nowhere else. And, um, and so I just didn't have, I wasn't equipped. And, and so when I went to university in particular, I was already kind of thoroughly catechized by the culture and, uh, and, and if not for the grace of the Lord and, uh, and, and running into some Christians who took apologetics and, and, uh, evangelism seriously, um, you know, I'm not sure where I'd be, but, um, as I, as I got into, as, as the Lord was gracious to save me and, and begin putting good books in my hands through, um, men that he had brought into my life. Um, I, I got into pastoral, uh, ministry after getting saved and that's a story in and of itself. But eventually I, I picked up the mission of God as I was starting to read good authors. It was actually the gateway drug for me was John Piper. I read, uh, um, desiring God. Um, because that, that's sort of a book that spans the, the, the Baptistic and the Pentecostal chasm. And, um, and I read that and, and started to get, uh, you know, I, I was taking English literature at school. So it's always you look at who, who the author is that you appreciate or like, who influenced him. So, you know, from Piper, I got onto Jonathan Edwards. I got onto C.S. Lewis. I got onto Chesterton. And with particularly C.S. Lewis and Chesterton, I, I started to see a, a cultural um, application of theology that I wasn't seeing anywhere else or I hadn't seen anywhere else. So anyway, long story short, when I, when I did pick up the mission of God, I, I felt as though Joe was bringing together all of these thoughts in my head about everything that was going wrong, but I couldn't quite put my finger on. And, uh, and, and of course, in the book, you, you quote from guys like Rush Dooney and Gary North and some of these guys. Um, and, uh, and that got me back into, you know, reading Kuiper, reading um, Rush Dooney, uh, reading some of their influences. And so it totally changed my thinking. And as a, as a young pastor who, you know, loved God, loved his word, but had no clue on how to apply God's word to life, um, it, the mission of God really helped me see that God has something to say in every sphere of life. It, it does. It's not just about Sunday mornings. It's not just about your private relationship with the Lord. It gave me a mission. It gave me something um, to kind of grab onto in my faith. So all that to say, uh, the the work of the institute. Like I, I am sort of a product of the work of the institute, and so here I am, fifteen years after it, its uh, inception. Uh, being able to uh, be on staff and, and bring forward that mission. But really the pastoral ministry, I've now been at Crossroads where I pastor for 10 years. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the work that we've done here that by God's grace has seen a lot of fruit. It, it's really, it's all thanks to this idea, this shift in our thinking from, you know, uh, Christ loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's to get you to heaven one day to a far more rich, a far more broad reality that God loves you and he wants to save you. And he wants to enlist you in the work of building his kingdom on the earth and his kingdom touches absolutely every sphere, which which gives a mission to every single person in my church, the the educator, the doctor, the lawyer, um, the stay at home mom, you know, the uh, the bricklayer, the business owner, the entrepreneur, every single one of them is interacting in a very in a different cultural sphere. And Christ has spoken into that sphere and given his law to uh, be the foundation for how that Christian is to interact within that sphere. And so it just kind of changed everything for me and uh, um, uh, really revitalized, I would say, my faith in a lot of ways. That's, uh, I'm going to cut that section out. I'm going uh, to put that uh, on, the, uh, on YouTube just as a commercial for the book. But, uh, <laughs> thanks, Nate. Sounds good. Sounds that's, good. Uh, that's great to hear. Um, yes, and uh, Joe, you'll uh, you'll obviously remember this well. But uh, my background, my education, uh, I studied uh, I studied to be a librarian, uh, and uh, I was still in school while I was working part time for the institute initially, as uh, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and when you study. Uh, to be a librarian, you kind of get this back porch view into what it means to uh, to work in publishing. Uh, so I was uh, I was working working for you. Uh, I was studying, and it was around this time that you were writing and uh, and seeking publishers for uh, this book, The Mission of God. And ultimately, through a uh, you know through a series of providential mishaps, uh, we th- we realized the uh, the best and most effective thing that uh, that we can do is start a publishing imprint and uh, represent this ourselves and that's uh, that's gone that's gone well um for anyone who is uh, who's curious publishing will never be confused for a get rich quick scheme but uh, <laughs> we we have seen uh we have seen steady uh steady and growing um Sales and uh, and activity and interest in uh, in that book, the mission of God, as well as uh, several of uh, Joe's other books. And along the way, we've uh, we've discovered uh, several other uh, like-minded authors, uh, instructors, fellows who have uh, who have seen uh, the mission of God and, and Joe's other books, and have said, "Hey, I've got uh, I've got an idea for a book that." Uh, mainstream evangelicals thought was kind of maybe too hot to handle or there wasn't uh, wasn't enough interest or hmm. whatever the uh, whatever the case was uh valuable books that uh, that didn't have a uh, didn't have the the kind of audience that uh, that a mainstream publisher was was thought thought would be viable that uh, that we've been able to take on so that uh, that ministry of Ezra Press uh, has been uh, something that uh, that I've been responsible for and that I've been privileged to see uh, grow over the past uh, past several years. And Nate, you and I have been talking about uh, getting uh, getting something out there with uh, on, with your your name on it as well. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to carrying that that ahead too. That's, yeah, uh, that's anyways been, uh... in the, in the context. Go ahead. I was just gonna just gonna say. Um hearing you talk about it that way um that in some respects yeah mission of god was sort of the uh became the founding book really of of ezra press um in mm-hmm. europe we had it published by wilberforce publications of course uh but in the early right. years earlier years of my ministry i i went the, the the typical route that one would usually go um I had Crossway and Baker and and various publishers in North America and Europe. Um, but I think that the, the decision in part has reflected the challenge facing the church is that it's increasingly the case that mainstream publishers do not want books that are addressing these 
some of these core and more confrontational issues. We had that experience, as you know, Ryan, uh, with a publication of Peter Jones's recently, um, where he had looked mm-hmm. high and low for a publisher uh, for his book, uh, Who's Rainbow? Um, no that's prizes right. for guessing the, the theme that that's dealing with. Um, and increasingly, publishers are running scared of addressing these kinds of issues. And so um, it's been amazing to watch, actually, Ezra Press, as we've started adding one author after another, uh, often people who have something uh, very credible and important to say, highly qualified people, uh, but where publishers are anxious and nervous um, about the subject matter, or they just don't think there's going to be the audience for it um, because they... Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have act that they're, they're not actually movement oriented. Whereas when you're trying to recover something, you're trying to reform something, by definition, it's not mainstream. Uh, you're, you're creating, in a certain sense, as you go, the audience that you are, that, that uh, you're seeking. Um, I think, um, on the whole, uh, Canon Press has done a fairly good uh, um, job of that. Uh, stateside as well and so um, it's been encouraging we're still in the early days of Ezra Press and and what the Lord will do with it but uh, it's certainly an exciting time with the publishing so you know there's the journal there's our publishing house um, and those are those are two of the key things alongside the podcast that we actually now do as a ministry yeah that's right uh the uh, the last thing that uh, that I wanted to to bring up on uh, on this episode is the uh, the training programs that we run, and we've uh, we've spoken about these uh, several times. We've we've promoted them and uh, made them aw- made listeners aware. Started off uh, talking about how we've had uh, we've had great great success and encouragement with. Uh, people hearing the podcast and then going to register for a program. But uh, again, Joe, I'll, uh, I'll get you to, uh, to comment on this sort of as our, uh, to, to cap off this episode. But effect, in, a, in a nutshell, uh, we, uh, you, you uh, specifically and some of the Ezra Institute fellows uh, were invited to participate sort of year after year in the uh, the training programs of other organizations and through that uh, through that experience we saw the uh, the effectiveness of sort of sustained face to face instruction and that was something that uh, we realized was going to be you know, very effective in the the distinct message of uh, cultural transformation cultural ref- reformation that uh, that we were uh, keen to emphasize and so that uh, that is the the final sort of uh, plank in our platform is uh, is events and training programs and joe maybe you can just round out that uh, that sketch that i've provided yeah so in the development of the institute we began with the website the journal and then the beginnings of uh, ezra press and obviously uh, as people grew more interested in our work um we had invitations to, to to speak at a variety of things, and so I was fairly regular at, at uh, uh, events, conferences in Canada. Um, but I began, as you said, to see a couple of models, uh, one in actually in the UK um, called the Wilberforce Academy, mm. and um, another in the United States, um, the Blackstone Legal Academy, where I was impressed by, although they were slightly different to what we offer, um, I was impressed by the the effectiveness of the multi-day in-person uh, contact with students and the transformational impact of that. And so we reached a point, uh, in certainly um, in, I reached a point in my own ministry at the church where I was able to begin to um, hand leadership responsibilities over, began that process. And... Um, free up time to begin to start thinking about what would it look like to begin to do training of our own. There was another, uh, f- a couple of other factors to that. Uh, one was that um, 
we got a leg up really in getting the training going by uh, uh, the acquisition of a facility uh, that has quickly become too small for us um, in in terms of um, our needs. Um, you know, the ministry is is has grown and. Um, we're now we've got offices now in the United States in Chattanooga in Tennessee uh, we've got an office now in England and all these places as as well as Canada and all of these places are uh, recipients now uh, of um, our training programs as we start to roll those out so um, we what the vision you know we didn't have massive ambitions for ourselves we 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 saw what we were doing that uh, there we thought there would be a few people annually who might like to receive some worldview cultural apologetics training and um, kingdom of god reflection lordship of christ uh and we thought that um that you know if we could have a small place to do that for a few weeks a year that would be um adequate for our needs for the future and we quickly began to realize that that wasn't sufficient and um, we were going to have to 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 move beyond the limits of southern ontario and that's what's happened now and we've got nate in leadership in canada i'm based in the uk now we've got a, a U- u.s director and um, we're seeing god really uh, begin to bless uh, these avenues for teaching and training um the other factor though ryan is, is linked to the the one in publishing which was we also began to find that when we began to address the task of of Christian apologetics as the defense of the Christian philosophy of life for every sphere, the biblical vision of life for every area of life, not just that area, as Nate said, between your ears, but what is the application into education? What is the application into into law, politics, um, economics, these spaces? What does it look like to develop a Christian view of these areas and defend the faith there as these legitimate entry points? Um, we were not without opposition. And what we began to find, Ryan, as you will well remember, is that suddenly uh, conferences and um, and camps and events that had me annually uh, cancelled me and no longer invited me. Uh, from the, from the mm-hmm. moment I addressed, for example, Christian education yeah. at one, at one uh, a very popular evangelical camp, um, having... Um, uh, basically filled those weeks for a number of years um, consecutively, uh, that was it. The, uh, the, the, the hierarchy cancelled me, and it's a small world, the Christian world, and um, uh, other cancellations followed. Uh, it tended to be the more vocational organizations like the Christian Legal Fellowship and the Christian Medical and Dental Association that built longer-term relationships with us and didn't cancel us. Um, uh, Although that changed with the CMDA, sadly, uh, more recently uh, during the, uh, the the COVID era, um, but uh, increasingly, what we found mm. was that where we had opportunity to share our message, those doors were being closed to us, and the gatekeepers were not giving us access to their people anymore. So we also realised we needed to offer our own conferences and training, uh, so that those who um, wanted to hear what we had to say about the kingdom of God, Christ's lordship, the application of the faith to all of life, uh, uh, the Christian philosophy of life for every sphere, that they would have the opportunity to do so. And that sadly uh, meant working around um, some of the traditional gatekeepers uh, who just like some of the publishers are running scared of these issues, uh, don't want to go there. And so the training, the conferences, the worldview programs, the academies, these have given us an opportunity to have multi-day life-transforming contact with uh, with people, especially younger people, the colloquiums as well with uh, some pastors and leaders. And again, I feel like even though we've been running those for a few years now, we're just at the beginning uh, and on the cusp of, of the opportunity with this new and emerging generation to equip uh, a new generation for the task of evangelization, not just personal evangelism, but re-evangelization of the culture. It's interesting when you think about, um, you know, saying that you just feel like it's getting started, Joe, and I agree with you, is um, because there have been so many Christians who have retreated from the public square and have sort of... Um, uh, feared the backlash that they would get if they spoke with any sort of authoritative voice, 
know, thus declares the Lord into the realm of education, into the realm of medicine, into the realm. And so, you know, cancel cancelization and all that kind of stuff took place. Uh, it's, it's almost like several years, it takes several years to kind of um, push through the embargo, right? And you, you might not like this analogy, but, you know, anybody who smokes stogies knows that Cubans are the best. And for a long time, Cubans, you know, couldn't, couldn't be sold in the United States. And the reality was anybody who wanted a good stogie still found a way to get a, get a Cuban. And so, so over the years, you know, Ezra's had to push through the embargo, but it seems to me just having come on board recently that that um, word of mouth gets out and uh, the students um, who have taken part in the training programs of Ezra have gone on, I think, to to really flourish in their personal Christian mission in both their churches and their vocational calling. And uh, and then word gets out. And so, uh, you know, it took a little while to push through that embargo. But uh, and though the embargo hasn't been lifted, we're still certainly not um, the favorite institution of some of the uh, the big Eva gatekeepers. Um, there are, there's a growing number of people who have had their lives transformed as they've come in and, and, uh, gained a world and life view that's been transformational and, uh, and that gets out. And, uh, and so now, uh, I, I think there's, uh, the harvest is now bountiful for, uh, for all that we're trying to do. And, and by God's grace, it's interesting to see, you know, the impact that the, the ministry has had, I, I think, through even some of the local pastors who have been knit together because of the work of the Institute and what's going on in their local churches is, uh, is quite uh, profound as well. And so, um, you know, it takes a while to spread the seed. But uh, when God starts growing things, the, uh, the kingdom of darkness doesn't have a whole lot to do about it. Amen. Amen. Nope. That's, uh, that's a good analogy. There's no uh, no reason to uh, to be ashamed of that. All right, and I guess it, finally, I would uh, I would be remiss after if after talking about uh, everything that we do and why we do it uh, that I didn't at least briefly uh, mention that uh, we've got a few training programs and events coming up this uh, this coming fall and winter. So, Joe, you've. Uh, you're running a uh, a conference in uh, in the UK in November. Uh, that's a uh, is that a one day or multi day? Um, yeah, that's our first uh, our first mission of God conference in the UK. It's a one day event. It's going to be right. in Daventry. People can watch the the website uh, for announcements about that. We're partnering with our friends at Christian Concern for that conference. Um, and a couple of our fellows will be speaking at the, joining me to, to speak at that. So uh, we're looking forward to that, uh, that forthcoming event in the UK. We've got a variety of other uh, things, of course, that the ministry is speaking at in Canada and, and the US and, uh, uh, and the UK. But in terms of our own events, that would be the first one. And I think we've got others in December. Right. That's right. Yeah. So we've got, uh, we've got two Two other uh, Mission of God conference events uh, happening in December. Uh, these are one-day events. They're all centered around a specific theme. And like I said, we've got two of them. One is happening in Windsor, Ontario at uh, Harvest Bible Church. That's, uh, that's the church where Aaron Rock is pastor. Aaron's a fellow for church leadership with the Institute. And he and Harvest have been, uh, been good, uh, good friends and brothers in arms with us for, for some years now. Uh, the other uh, the other conference is happening in Calgary. Uh, that's uh, the week later on uh, on December 9th. Uh, and that uh, that'll be at Tim Stevens Church. Uh, Tim, our uh, our brother, a pastor at Fairview Baptist. Uh, you'll uh, you'll a lot of us a lot of you will know his name. Uh, he was he was arrested, spent some time in prison for uh, for holding worship services during the COVID uh, lockdowns and. Uh, and bans on gathering. Uh, he was just recently, was it, was it acquitted or all charges dropped or found not guilty? I'm not sure how the, the, uh, legalese shakes out, but, uh, Tim, Tim was vindicated. Uh, long story short, the, uh, he, he was, uh, he was vindicated in that case and we are, we're rejoicing with him. Uh, and he, uh, he will be, uh, speaking there along with Joe uh, and some of our other Ezra uh, fellows and friends. The theme for, uh, for both of those events 
is uh, uh, transgenderism and uh, redeeming uh, the uh, the realm of sexuality. Sorry, Nate, you looked like you were just about to say something there. Yeah, I was just going to say for both of those events as well, uh, the night before, they're both on a Saturday on uh, December 2nd and December 9th, December 2nd in Windsor at Harvest and uh, December 9th in uh, Calgary at uh, Fairview. And the Friday nights before each of those, there's going to be a, a pastor and church leader training uh, event. And so I would just say, yes. um, if, if you are listening and you are a pastor or a church leader, an elder, a ministry leader, uh, an on-staff person, or if you're a listener and you know that your church, um, it, your, your church pastors and leaders aren't necessarily connected to the Ezra Institute, I would encourage you to um, uh, encourage them to sign up for those. Um, it's uh, it's going to be training for church leaders because at the end of the day, the conference is going to be wonderful. And we'll, you'll, you'll hear some really sound lectures on uh, what the Bible has to say about these things. But those Friday nights will be um, kind of real talk with church leaders. What do we do Um how how does how do these impact our churches? We all know that there's a growing animosity and uh, attack on the churches who take a biblical stance on these issues. So to talk through uh, churches and and how to go about teaching these things and getting good resources into the hands of your people, how to counsel uh, families with kids who are caught up in LGBT identity uh, issues. Um, that's going to be on the Friday night in both locations. So I would encourage you if uh, if you have a, a church that isn't availing themselves of some of Ezra's training opportunities, this is a great one night to show them sort of the value of these in-person training events. So I'd encourage you to uh, sign up for those if you're a church leader or encourage your church leaders to sign up for them if you're not. That's great. Thanks for that, uh, that appendix. Uh, all of the information for for these events can be found on the website, ezrainstitute.com. I'll put a link uh, to the specific conference pages uh, right below and all of your information registration uh, details are gonna be available there. Joe and Nate, it's been, uh, been great to uh, connect with you again. Welcome back to the new season of the podcast and we are, uh, we're all looking forward to, uh, to exciting and encouraging things ahead. As ever, this has been the podcast for cultural reformation, and I remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified, and we'll be with you next week. 